Patrick and I are from completely different backgrounds and see the world through very dissimilar lenses. Patrick comes from a political family in the US. He worked in finance, served in the military, and is an investor and a risk analysis strategist. I grew up in a commune in Germany and studied literature. I'm a writer and a professor of cultural history in the UK. I am also a coach and I have published some books on the art of self-improvement. In other words, Patrick likes dogs, data, guns, and free markets. I like cats, trees, and yards. Patrick's core interest is systems. Mine is psyches. Patrick says tomato, and I say tomato. But what Patrick and I share is a deep curiosity about other people's perspectives and ways of thinking. We both appreciate nuance and complexity and share a sense of being politically homeless. We also share an interest in looking more deeply at current trends and dogmas and a love of Stoic thought. Both of us have a desire for conversations that are not about point scoring, poking holes into other people's arguments, or converting them to our ways of thinking, but that are based on respect and a genuine wish to learn. So I hope you enjoy our podcast. Good morning, Anna. Hi, Patrick. Good to see you. you. How are you? Doing great, thank you. Yeah, very hot day here in the UK. It's a beautiful, uh, crisp, sort of almost fallish day here in Montana. Mm, nice. So today we wanted to talk about mimetic desire. And more broadly speaking, the question about how do we want if what, what we want is actually what we want and not just what somebody else wants. And we're imitating their desire. So. I know you're a big fan of uh, René Gira and his theory of mimetic desire, which basically states that more often than not, we want something because it's the object of desire of somebody else. And the only thing that makes it attractive to us is that the other person wants it. And desire in that sense becomes something we want to copy, we want to emulate, we want to be like that other person, want to have what they have. And mimetic desire is really a very strong force in our daily decision-making processes and in our consumer behavior. Um, And I think the, the question about, you know, what do we really truly want and how do we know it's our desire and not somebody else's desire that we might be unconsciously emulating is a really fascinating one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's at least, you know, this Girardian concept of mimesis has come to sort of a, I'd say it's bubbled up in Silicon Valley in the last 20 years, right? Because a lot of the product designers and founders either got exposed to him maybe during undergrad or through readings or through maybe some of the um, people that invest in the companies I actually started looking at Girard because I had read him sort of earlier on in philosophy, but then as applied to business, because Peter Thiel had been talking about it, how it relates to social media and social proof in these in, the, in different companies. And when you think about the application of some of and he was a polymath, right? I mean, he he was sort of a a rare in the in, in the old days, he would have been common, but he since you know in the 50s because he sort of wrote across disciplines right he touched sociology economics you know philosophy psychology and he was brought into lecture on all different topics and you look at his range of books i know you've read a number of them as well it covers a very large range of human history applying this idea mm-hmm. of mimesis and how um ideas are formed throughout groups right 
and how they also sort of, um, and the mimetic desires, as you said, are um, not actually wanting what we want, but maybe wanting what the collective wants that becomes these objects of the mm. desires, and then they become incredibly um, attractive to everyone. And, you know, I, I was listening recently to a lecture um, from a, a young philosopher, uh, and he was a philosophy major, Jonathan Bai, about mimetic desire. And it's sort of one of those things he said, it was sort of a warning where he said, once you see this, you can't unsee it in your mm -hmm. own life, too. And, and, and Gerard talks about the same as just because you're aware of mimetic desire doesn't mean you're not you're inoculated from it. You may be just as mm -hmm. susceptible as everyone else. You'll just see a lot of other actions um, through a different lens. And yeah. that's what I found fascinating about it. Yeah, and it is a usually fascinating topic, and it's actually an uncomfortable and a slightly scary topic, too. You know, because as you say, once we notice that and once we notice how imitative we may be unconsciously or consciously, that um, that makes us question quite a lot of our choices. And I think with fashion, we see it really clearly, right? We want those kinds of shoes or we want those kinds of bags because we see lots of people around us um, who've got them. And in a way, there is nothing intrinsically attractive about these items of clothing or accessories but it's just the fact that certain people who are models for us sort of role models or our peers seem to um have them that makes us want to have them too and we're so influenced by that stuff right especially in big cities where we you know where we see a lot of trendy beautiful types walking around with certain items and 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 we, it's very hard to actually um resist that and to stay immune to that because i think a lot of stuff really is almost infectious and i think desire has an infectious quality it's like you know we know we can catch viruses yeah. we know um about other things that that we can catch but we don't know that we can catch somebody else's desire just by being exposed to it and you know you can catch obesity certain habits even suicide at some level can be um something that that you're influenced by if it happens in your vicinity um and the same is definitely true with material goods and with various status objects and just being exposed to that you are impacted um and that's that's really a scary thought right because there there seems to be some kind of um, subliminal, unconscious um, process going on that we we find hard to control and resist. You know the latest technological gadget, um, and so on. Certain types of cars, and in certain communities, you know, you notice that a lot of people aspire to having similar things. And I think looking back on some of the sociological and historical work, it may have served almost a way to reinforce a hierarchy among a tribe right and it might have served a pretty strong evolutionary function a hundred thousand years ago eighty thousand years ago right when the, when you're operating groups of two to three hundred having these common desires may drive people towards um similar goals right or hey we all want to be this is our archetypal what we want to go towards and there weren't as many choices and desires and right, I mean, there, there wasn't nearly the scale, like you're saying, among in a city, it's thousands of tribes layered on top of each other with all different. And you you fall into these buckets without knowing, at least um, I think what's interesting is what's happened in the last you know four or five hundred years 
in terms of a, a Girardian analysis, because now we are exposed. And also, as you and I talked about in social media, social media the, yeah. Yeah, the last 20 years, the, this I, Girardian idea of mimesis, in fact, went to the whole world, where now yeah. a person in Cape Town can look at what someone's doing in New York or Shanghai and want what they want. And that, that ability, it would be interesting, Gerard alive today, talking about this, how mm. that it basically, he, you know, it's like he, he threw diesel on a fire of um, mimetic desire because now it can affect everyone across the whole world simultaneously. And the same as, like you said, ideas can, are, are, can be the same, right? I, if I like this idea, if I believe in this um, set of political beliefs, that can what I don't really care about the utility to believe as opposed to what it says about me. And that's, mm. I think he would have a lot to say today, an unbelievable amount, what's happened in the last 20 years because of yeah. mass distribution of desire. Mass distribution Absolutely. of desire is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And that's the really scary bit, isn't it? You know, because in the past, I think the circle of people to whom we were exposed and um, with whom we interacted was relatively small. And so the mimetic desire circle was also much smaller. And now we mm -hmm. really see um, also highly filtered presentations of what people have, what they do, who they seem to be. And so that um, exposure in itself must, you know, must totally multiply what we want, why we want it, how we want it. Um, and I suppose the social media dimension of mimetic desires is really scary. And of course, people also weaponize it, right? I mean, there's also marketing um, strategies that that obviously weaponize our mimetic desire. And, and we have very, very smart people who engineer and who manipulate and who very clearly try to trigger our mimetic desires um, via lots of different channels. Um, so, yeah, it's become a much, much, much more complex project a pro problem than it was when Gira was alive. And I think what what also interests me about that is it's it relates to the idea of authenticity, right? What is our authentic self and what are our authentic wants, our authentic needs and how much are we a product of our environment, the media we consume, the people we engage with? How much of us is actually impacted by others, our culture, and our consumption habits? Um, and when it comes to our wants and needs and desires, that, that question becomes particularly pertinent um, because authenticity of desire is something I'm really curious about. You know, when are we just following scripts? When are we just imitating others? And when is what we want really, truly what we want? And I guess you could argue that when our desires are unusual or go counter to current trends, that we can be more certain that they're not just imitative um, but even then, we might just be reacting against something that we don't want to be part of. And, and that might also not be fully authentic in its own right. It's a very difficult subject as you drill it down. And the weaponization is probably that's why I got attracted to this is when you hear people investing in these companies talking about. Right. So there's the there's the base neurotransmitter hacking of the dopamine reward system. But then there's this deeper medic hacking, which is is more subconscious, right? Which is not actually, doesn't have to be necessarily found purely in the 
um, day-to-day neurotransmitters, but over time, whether it's status or what the objects or the choices in your life say about you rather than the actual utility of the choice, right? And it even goes down to things in some of these examples where it was like choices of uh, your mate, not just where you live, but some people unconsciously choose the mate, not because they actually want the mate, but they want what the mate says about them in the society of the status hierarchy. So it goes mm. deep. When, when you peel back the layers of Girardian, this isn't just, I want a nice pair of shoes for fashion. It's what does my wife or husband look like? What does he do for a living? That there's things, and, that, and that's where you start to get even more uncomfortable. Because like you're saying, mm. how many of these choices you're making are your own? Now, Girard would say very little. Like he would say, this is such a powerful force. And it's so um, hard to inoculate yourself against it. The best you can do is just be aware and focus a little bit on your authentic self. But at the end of the day, you're more um, subservient to this than you want to choose to believe. Um, mm. And then there's maybe some people, you know, we talk about agentic, right? More people who believe in their own agency who want to revolt against this. But that may in and of itself be a status thing. You know, I'm a, I'm a contrarian thinker. Yeah, right. and I can, I I'm can different. I'm yeah. really different. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't. I, I don't follow trends, and that's partly a status thing too. A trend, right? right? <laughs> and I, that's myself. I could say I yeah. pride myself on being a little bit of a contrarian, maybe more than a little bit. Most of my friends and family would <laughs> I say. would say so, Patrick. <laughs> and, but that that may in and of itself be a mimetic within a certain tribal affiliation, right? Now that that mm. that may not be as widespread. It may be um, not as powerful as the pure status affiliation. But it definitely is there. And when you start to peel back these layers and understand it, I think it gets um, more to the core of, like you're saying, the authentic self and how we interact in the world. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And status is obviously one one of the core human desires. And I guess learning um, and variety of experience are also in that category, as is altruism. You know, and I think with all of those core desires we we are also imitative um because we see other people enacting them or acquiring what what feeds them um and i'm always intrigued though that you know Girard's theory of the scapegoat has fallen a little bit um from favor and it's not as fashionable as his ideas on mimetic desire where whereas i was always really fascinated by the scapegoat idea right that communities bond over a shared enemy over identifying a shared um figure who on whom they project all their hatred all their sorrows all their dis all their dislikes and of course the scapegoat um has this wonderful uh, symbolic function you can literally load everything you don't want everything that you want to disavow that you want to get rid of onto the scapegoat and then send the scape scapegoat out of the village or you sacrifice the scapegoat and and that has a um hugely community generating function right i mean simple yeah. version of that is that we bond over a common enemy or we even when we gossip right we we gossip about somebody else and that binds us closer together um and i suppose that scapegoat idea is is another really interesting one that it, he he popularized. And he uh I think it's probably just as relevant today. It's just not as because mm. it's it doesn't it's fashionable. It's not as fashionable, <laughs> yeah. but it's but we, we can see it happening, right? You and I talk mm. about you know political division in and out groups, the same thing. It's I think people are it's just 
what's more difficult today is you can we can look at a um ethnic tribe six seven hundred years ago and see very clearly the scapegoating mechanism today it's harder because it, it's a different affiliation mechanism it's not locale it's maybe not mm. your neighborhood you may be just bound by you know some people are um, bonding on a reddit board and they create this idea or maybe just a conspiracy or just this and they layer it all on there and then that's how they're exiling these these um desires from themselves so i think the scapegoating desire is probably happening just as much today it's yeah. just harder it's harder to see it because it's not it's not oh we're gonna go after this specific group in our that looks differently because now i think it's happening on a much uh different layer and it's more in our in our in our brains than in our locales and in our um, skin colors and this it's happening in a much different way all around the world it may be just as, it may be just as prevalent right we just don't see it um as clearly as as the mimesis right and people yeah. also can't but they haven't been able to weaponize scapegoating there are well no let's let's be careful there are people weaponizing scapegoating in mm. a lot in the political realms or the thought realms or the leadership the thought leadership realms or these two groups they don't make as much money off it but they get a lot of status from it because i create my group mm. and then make that group so you and i have, we have very deep political um debates but a lot of it, think about the, the different groups that are weaponized us against each other. We just were recently talking about that. Whereas the mimesis part seems that it's like every business, everyone, you almost are swimming in a sea of mimesis. You have to take it, mm. you have to understand and take advantage of it. Whereas the scapegoating thing, every group's doing some version of it. Yeah, true. True. Right. Yeah. But Girard also talks about the theater of envy, which I find a very evocative image. Um and I do also think that, you know, when we talk about desires and wants, um, they're obviously the objects that signal our status to the external world. But there's also the deeper ones that relate to our life's trajectory, right? And what we want in life, how we want our next chapter to look like, what we want our story to be like. And there I, I'm intrigued by how difficult it is really to emancipate yourself from common scripts you know about what we should want and what a well-lived life should look like you know what the standard goals and the standard signifiers of success and achievement look like when we start to um emancipate ourselves from those kind of narratives it, it again gets very very thorny and tricky to really be in touch with what what we genuinely deep down want you know and i think a lot of um people in midlife experience that kind of questioning you know this kind of mm -hmm. you know i followed certain scripts up until now i might be financially comfortable i might be in a job where i know my stuff quite well but i feel like is this it is this really it you know is this really what i wanted sometimes getting what we think we wanted may not feel that great um and it might actually lead to, you know, a real kind of form of plateauing or almost depressive lethargy, you know, because when we want something, we obviously, we're activated to pursue it. And we have an aim, we have a goal, we have a reason to get out of bed and to do X, Y, and Z. Sometimes when we do get what we want, that can also be a tricky moment, psychologically speaking, right? Um a lot of people who who get promotions, they they plateau. They don't, you know, necessarily celebrate and feel like, wow, I've made it. 
they need something else. And I ha I have a client, a coaching client, who who said very beautifully that you know they used to be motivated by fear in their job. They did their job because they needed uh, you know to cover their mortgage. They needed status they needed to show everyone that what they studied was worth it and now now they you know were putting to use their skill set um above all they really needed financial security and then they they had all that and they realized okay i'm no longer motivated by fear because i've i've done what i was afraid of i've shown that i i can do that But what is lacking now is love, right? And they were thinking you're either motivated by fear or love. And I think a lot of people who stagnate and who become quite paralyzed in their jobs in midlife, they lose the fear component of their motivation, but they realize this is not what I love, right? This is not what I really would choose to do if I had the choice. But the problem is they often don't know what they would love to do instead. And that's where, you know, we come back to, The idea of what do we really want and how do we know it is what we want yeah it uh reminds me of you know schopenhauer would said uh man can do what he wants but not want what he wants right and that doesn't make sense but you, you know the, sort of ranking desires but if a person can do the things he thinks he wants but they actually not really want them because maybe that's like yeah. moving like you were saying the fear is moving away from something the love is moving towards something And if you spend a lot of your life in a in actual real scarcity, not just a scarcity mindset, you tend to try to move away from hardships. But then eventually, if you get to the point, if you're you know in our Western civilization and um, the world where you're privileged enough to not have those, all of a sudden now you haven't ever cultivated that part of your personality which says, "What do I want to move towards?" And that's the midlife crisis in a sense, or um, yeah, uh, almost a, a crisis of too many resources. Right. You get to the point where I, I have enough resources. I'm not really afraid. But what am I moving towards? And now there's a huge amount of explanation we're talking about, whether it's, you know, Girardian ideas or every philosopher's talked about it. Every psychologist talks about it. Well, how do we actually know what we want to move towards? And is it and is it mimetic? A lot of it may be. Or is it mm. a combination of, you know, um, can I can I read about it? Is there ancient wisdoms? Are there different ideas? But we don't teach people to think about that as they in our educational system right our educational system is yeah. not designed to even um i would say harvest that little bit of intellect which is you you want to develop these skills so that you can develop resources so you can move away from um these uh i'd say the difficulties of life but what are you actually going towards that's not taught even in a philosophy uh you know major it's not it's more it, more theoretical as opposed to what you're saying is what do you actually want to go towards And what is your self story? What is your narrative? And that's something that I think probably more people need to do, right? Not only, you know, whether it was through coaching or this is, um, and a lot of that may come from mimesis, you know, coming back to Girard, but at least you still have a, or archetypal thinking, yeah. right? They, they all layer into each other, but it's same, at least it's your choice and you can change your story, right? That's the, the best part of it is you can say, I want to move towards this, but that doesn't have to be set in stone permanent. It may just be, you know, yeah. an iterative, an iterative function that you can grow and change over time. Yeah, and it's also kind of life stage dependent, I would say, mm -hmm. right? And I guess you know, even the idea of the midlife crisis is is partly mimetic. It's like, oh my god, yeah. I am in my 40s. Shouldn't I now turn inwards? Shouldn't I now <laughs> question what mm -hmm. I have been doing so far? 
far yeah. and um should i not you know should there not be more should i not think there should be more right i mean mm-hmm. even that at some level is also um a script i mean it's an observed behavior because uh, you know jung had quite a lot to say about why the midlife crisis occurs when it occurs you know it's a kind of we we chase all the exter- external objects of desire we you know we, we become relatively successful at what we set out to do and then when we have achieved a certain plateau a certain level we realize oh that's not really truly making us happy that's not ultimately as fulfilling as we thought it might be and then the questioning and the kind of journey inwards and the kind of deeper search that is more you know psychological rather than external starts um but again that has almost become a convention right through which a lot of people cycle at this point mm-hmm. we almost expect to to have that moment in our lives now and it may be um you know as, as Girardian would say it's a status thing if you have the mm. ability to have a midlife crisis you reach a certain accomplishment level right so yeah. the fact that you're having a midlife crisis means you've accumulated enough societal resources to question whereas people who are living you know, hand to mouth, they're not worried about midlife crisis. Yeah. They're worried about just, yeah, just surviving, getting enough resources, keep their, their line going, keep their tribe going. And it's, uh, it's something that only people who have reached a certain status can even contemplate. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's also the, you know, the idea of wanting ever more of what you already have. Um, which is another kind of more automatic way of reacting to, um, you know, perhaps not wanting to pause, not not wanting to feel what is actually there, what we might really be experiencing, what might be missing. But quite a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, just quite automatically want want more and more and more and more of what they have set out to um, acquire or achieve. You know, that could yeah. be money, that could be fame. Um, and the problem with those things is, you know, the kind of never enough problem, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's a real problem, right? And it's, um, I think it happens uh, across sort of cultures and across um, what, what, you know, it can be. And some for, for some people, maybe on a micro scale, it doesn't have to be on the world scale. But those never enough issues are going to cause catastrophic results most people because that's their is it's um status like you said fame wealth you're going to continue people continue they don't hit the goalpost they just continue to move the end zones they never actually Mm. succeed in winning the game um but i guess that's that in and of itself, maybe another mimetic issue, right? The people who have who are accomplishing so much are they can they can say I keep moving the goalposts because I'm so accomplished, mm. right? Yeah. And we don't we don't have a uh, a scale for authenticity or happiness, so we don't you you don't get in a lot of status by saying oh I'm just really authentic and happy. Now I, I actually think you do get an element of that because when you meet those people. Are very comfortable in who they are, who seem authentic and happy with what they're doing. Everyone can see that when you meet them, right? And mm, there's something about true. them which calms you when you see. And it doesn't have to be a monk; it could be an artist, it could be a stonemason, it could be a teacher, it could be a policeman, whoever just 
I'm really comfortable with who I am. I really enjoy what I do. I'm not, I'm not playing these other uh, games that other people are playing. They, you, we all have a feeling when you meet them. And it's a calming yeah. feeling and people talk about it. And, but, but we don't have a way to measure it. So I can't achieve that status without being that person. And it's very difficult to achieve that because mm. they know they, yeah. they, they know what they want, want what they want and are doing what they want. They're doing all those things at the same time. And I don't think there's a common parlance or a currency that we can determine that gives us the ability to say, oh, I've, I've, I've reached that. So mm. instead, you're chasing continually moving um, mimetic desires, which is very difficult and almost, un, you know, you'll never reach it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like hunting something elusive. And the people who have found what they want, you, you're absolutely right. They have a, a calm aura. And you also realize that they they are they don't care what what other people around them think. And that's I mean that sounds banal, but it's really mm -hmm. hard to put that into practice and to live that and to live accordingly. You know, and I actually find that in England people celebrate eccentrics more so than in many other countries, you know, the eccentrics with their strange life choices and who are visibly eccentric you know who dress like eccentrics who speak like eccentrics they have a have a place in in this culture one thing i like a lot about england that they they love their eccentrics and i would say eccentrics are are people who really signal hey you know i i know what i want i know what interests me and and i'm i'm going for it and i really don't care whether i break with cultural scripts or not mm -hmm. and that definitely i think played an outsized role in both, you know, in, in the amount of science, economic, and thought that came out of England, right? It's because yeah. they allowed people to be outliers like that. That's that's bled over into the United States, you know, for a country that has um, a lot of people here obsessed with fame, a lot of people up here obsessed with status. There's millions of people that are more like the yeah. England model, right? Because it's just a vast country. And we, it's something interesting to think about is culturally, it's almost looked up upon, right? And then, yeah. It reinforces itself it's like the uh, the people outside of the group still have a can have a very very high status because they just do what they want and it is i was just reading um some of naval ravikant yesterday he was saying how not caring what other people want is a superpower it's like the ultimate mm. superpower. Mm -hmm. he said it, he says you know and his this is from reflection done. reflection and meditation from the eastern worldview so he's saying like based on a buddhist worldview or based on um other meditations not caring what other people think is probably one of the greatest powers anyone in the world can have. And it's mm -hmm. not saying you don't operate in groups and you're a monk on an island or you're a, a, a set, you know, ascetic in the woods. It's just you can still love being in, in your tribe and in this, but at the end of the day, if it comes from yourself versus them, you happen to be a more powerful person without yeah. any change resources. It's just a shift in mindset. And it's because what you don't, want or need is approval right and that really is a superpower when you just you it's nice to have it but you don't live for it you don't need it it's not necessary for you it's not you know your lifeblood as you and, and i that, talk well, going back to the stoics right it's a preferable but it's yeah, not requisite yeah it's, 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 it's preferable nice but yeah it's not the aim of what people do and I think that's, you know, that's when you when you meet someone eccentric, authentic, someone who has freed themselves of of other people's scripts, that's what they will share, right? They they don't don't need approval and they don't crave it and their actions are not oriented towards that. Mm -hmm.
I would agree very actually strongly. And I would think when I study some of the issues on Mises and Girard, it's not that there aren't people able to resist it or play outside of it. He's talking more about the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the people are playing this game. Sure, there's a lot of people that aren't doing it. Hmm. But overall, the culture moves in that way. The culture, you know, um, idolizes fame and wealth and these things. But that doesn't mean everyone. He's never, you know, most people are always qualifying. It's not absolute. What it is is this is sort of the societal trends. But there's many, many, many people, many people that you meet that aren't in that script. They're in their own, right? And they've been... Um, through a combination of fortune and hard work and maybe recognizing things about themselves. or And sometimes they just get that fortune of they happen to be in the job that was passed down from their parents, but they love it. And they're very mm-hmm. good. At it. They're very, so there's there's an element of all of those things. But I think it's not when, when we start, you know, we don't want to doom everyone to this idea that there's these, you know, status and mimetic desires that they can't escape. It's just something to know. It's a backdrop of our tribal civilization, group civilization. But you don't have to. Um, partake in all of it, right? Yeah, and you can you can be aware of it, and it can be nice to have those things, but they shouldn't be core to who you are. Because those, in the end, if if everything about who you are is external, it's going to be a rough go of it. Absolutely, right. beautiful closing words, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs>